Hello and welcome to another podcast from the Centre for Eye Research Australia. On the 21st of July, CIRA researchers spent the morning at Swinburne University discussing the importance of big data and supercomputing power in their research. The following is an interview with Professor Matthew Bales, who is a member of CIRA's Research Advisory Committee. He's also the lead astrophysicist at the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University and the director of OSGRAV, the ARC Centre for Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery. Yeah, so I started my career studying something called radio pulsars. At the time, back in the 80s, there was only about 350 known. Um, there's now 2,500. And every now and then, these objects, which are sort of the fossil records of massive stars' lives, occur in systems that enable us to study them with, with great intricacy. And unfortunately, these stars um, are very rare in, in the universe and they require sifting through millions of records, each of which are sort of megabytes in length. That requires us to employ statistical techniques on big supercomputers in order to make any progress. So I, I kind of got led into big data because the more data you look at, the more you find. What's amazing, I think, um, from today's discussion is the speed of uh, the progress in the tools that you have. So when you would have started in the, in the 80s, the computing power of the machines that you had then was vastly different from what it is today. Can you talk a bit about that and how that's helped you or made it more complicated? Yeah, I think ever since I can remember, and, and I've been in this field for sort of 30 plus years now, we've been computationally limited. So we've always wanted to do more with the data and, and take more data, but we haven't had the computational power to do it. The first survey that I, I processed had a, a terabyte of data, and at the time that was considered a ridiculous amount. We could now process that data in real time, but what's happened is we've now doing surveys that have petabytes of data. And it always seems that the more computer power we can get, the, the more in-depth we'll try and look at the sky. And a petabyte is a 1,000 terabytes, is that right, or is it more? Yeah, a petabyte is a 1,000 terabytes, and a petabyte of disk you know, costs about a half a million dollars, so you don't want to fill it with rubbish. Unfortunately, the amount of science we get per byte, if you like, is going down, but we're generating data not just five times or ten times faster, but thousands of times. And in fact, the latest instrument we built records data at 22 gigabytes a second, which is one and a half petabytes every day. So we usually ask questions and then design machines in order to answer them. Some colleagues and I about 10 years ago discovered that a few thousand times a day the, the radio sky flashes just for a few milliseconds. Although we found the the first of these flashes in 2007. It was actually from data that had been taken in 2001. And it took us sort of six years to get around to processing it in the right way. Nowadays, we've got systems that process the data in real time. So within sort of five seconds, we actually know if we've discovered something. So that time to discovery is, is reducing drastically. And it's all because we've got more computer power at our disposal. We used to think that we understood sort of all the sources that might be appearing in our data. And unfortunately, one of the problems with the big data era is that you don't actually look at your data by eye anymore. 
and you start to develop algorithms that automatically reject things that don't fit into your pattern of normality because you assume the data is corrupted in some way. In fact, one of the sort of most important things I discovered, um, our computer algorithm that processed the data had classified it as interference because it was so bright it actually saturated our receiver and we assumed that anything that bright we would already know about. One of my greatest discoveries was almost automatically rejected by the computer. So there's a danger in this um, processing with computers as well as a strength. And that brings us very nicely to the eye being discussed today. So I'm very curious about the collaboration or work between astronomers like yourselves and ophthalmologists. How on earth did that collaboration or even discussion first start? Yeah, I actually met the director of of CIRA, Jonathan, on a, I think it was a 120-kilometre bike ride, and I, I just found myself um, riding next to him and, and chatting. And then we realised over the sort of following years that this big data thing is spreading throughout different areas of science, and we thought it might be good to, to bring our, our two groups together and, and see what synergies there were and what strengths in, in various areas there might be. Ophthalmologists or medical students can use big data. What are your views about that, particularly in reference to what you saw from our researchers today? Look, I think physicists took a long time to understand the importance of computing in their research. When I was an undergrad and first thought about doing a physics degree and a higher degree, I asked the course coordinator, you know, how important will computing be? And his view was, oh, you can learn all the computing you need just in a week or two. You don't need to worry about it. And I think it was probably the worst advice I ever got. I noticed that when I started my PhD, those that had done computing sort of roared off into the distance and the rest of us scratched around trying to work out what was going on. And I think early adopters of computing benefited greatly. I think, you know, an ophthalmologist probably has even less computer science in their their training by default than a, a physicist. And... Even today, a lot of our students come through with not enough computing, but I think it's almost an essential skill. You don't have to be an expert at doing it yourself, but you have to understand the capabilities of it. And I think today's workshop is a great way of connecting some of those people who who know what problem they want to solve with people who are are used to using computers on a, a very large scale. Was there anything that particularly struck you? What did you think about the hyperspectral camera? Yeah, I was really amazed at how similar that was to a lot of what we do on on the, sp- on the sky. And we've got all these libraries and computer algorithms that we've been using for that work for, for many years. And in fact, I, the first thing that struck me was I wonder what format he's writing his data out in. Because if it's in a particular format, we could just instantly read it in. But I, I suspect they probably have their own version of the data. So probably a first stage would be to translate it into a format that we that our tools can use. And I think beyond Swinburne, there's a lot of groups in Australia who are expert at this kind of processing. And, and maybe even if the collaboration between CIRA and, and Swinburne slash Osgrove isn't you know, the, the extent of the collaboration, maybe it's about us introducing people to others in the field in Australia or around the world who could help so much of what we do is very fundamental and its connection with everyday people's lives is, is there from an interest point of view and about advancing theories that might make technological progress possible in 
10 or 50 or 100 years. But it's, it's fantastic to see people working on real-world problems for people suffering ailments today and that maybe some of our techniques can, can help accelerate that. That was Swinburne University's Professor Matthew Bowles talking about his work in astronomy and possible collaborations with the Centre for Eye Research Australia. Find out more about CIRA's research and activities at cira.org.au.